My Mother, The Person and the Patient is an original podcast written and hosted by me, Fortuna Kuso. This podcast is about my mother, Timira Abdesamid Muhammad, Ayaya we call her. That's grandmother in Somali, and her great-grandchildren call her Ayaya too, and that is their way of saying great-grandmother. A few weeks after I'd hired the second person to watch my mother for me during the day when I went to work, I took my mother for a visit with her family doctor, and he did whatever reason we were there at the time. And then in the process, I explained to him my struggle of trying to find services within the community to help me take care of my mother. And then he said he's going to refer my mother to the CCAC. That is, uh, was now the name change. It's called the Lynn now. I live in Ontario. So that is the arm of the healthcare responsible in providing services within the community. And that includes somebody who was discharged from the hospital, but still needs a nurse to, um, to inject or have an IV or things like that, or somebody like my mother who needed a personal support. And they fund privately held agencies that would serve what well, that would provide services so this arm of the government ccac formerly and now the lin um pays these private agencies to provide the services whether it's a personal support care nursing care uh, occupational therapy physical therapy Anything that needs to take place within the home, in the community, this agency is responsible. So uh, he made the referral. A worker from that agency came and she was doing the intake, this process called intake, where she takes all the information uh, regarding my mother and myself. So she came, she looked around the house to make sure to make sure the house was safe for my mother. And then she sat down and she had pages and pages. This could have been easily 15 pages of information from where my mother was born, when she was diagnosed, her health situation, her family doctor, any medication she's taken, list of her prescriptions, on and on. So as we as we went through, then then we filled in those forms, and um, and the worker asked me what my goal was for my mother, and I told her uh, my goal is to keep my mother at home and get as much support as I can to keep her at home safely. So she asked me if I would consider putting her on a wait list for a nursing home. And I said, no, I don't want to put her on a wait list for a nursing home. There is no reason for me to put her on a wait list for a nursing home because I have no intention of putting her in a nursing home. This is not to say there is something wrong with nursing home or there is something wrong with families that see this as a solution to put their uh, parents or loved ones in a nursing home. That is uh, based on a situation. Everybody's situation is different. But my situation, based on my situation, based on my view, based on what I wanted for my mother, my goal was to keep her at home and get as much services as I can through the healthcare system and supplement it myself, pay what I couldn't get through the healthcare out of pocket. And I was okay with that. But it's 
it seemed as though the worker that came, and I don't really want to include a name or put anybody out, but the worker that came really struggled the concept of me not wanting to put, to put my mother's name on a wait list. So she said, you realize if you decide six months down the road, you cannot provide the care your mother needs in the home then then there will be a wait you won't be able to call me next day and say i need a, a bed in a nursing home and and then we'll find you the bed right so if you put your mother's name on the list now it's possible depending on uh the location you choose the wait could be uh, a year could be six months whatever so it's a time it's not something that you would ask for today and get in tomorrow. So she explained to me that, and I appreciated her explaining to me that um, that I need, that there is a weight in this process. But And I understood that intellectually, and I told her, I understand what you're telling me, and I really appreciate your warning, but I am not going to uh, put my mother in a home. So, and I, but I said, I just having this intake to see as much help as I could get so I can plan my situation and find services that I pay out of pocket, whatever it is that I cannot get paid. Because I am not expecting, um, if anything, I understand how overtaxed the system is, right? Because anytime you go to the emergency, which thank God I didn't need to go um, that much, that you know how overtaxed the system is. And the, whether it's the hospital or the, or the family doctor's office or the one provided in the community, there is only so much resources and the system is overtaxed. I understand that. But I was hoping the system would understand where I'm coming from, that I had no desire to put my mother's name on a wait list for a nursing home. And please do not uh, mistake this uh, of me saying, you know, I'm a better person than everybody else. I'm keeping my mother at home. But that was my decision to do it. And then, and then within that one hour, I think it must have taken more than an hour. It could have been even two hours. It was really really long like the questions some of them repeated for no particular reason and um and then she'd asked them um, and if i had you know um power of attorney that covered both her finances and and her um her health so i gave it a copy of that so within that intake she'd asked me three times or four times if I was 100% sure that I didn't want to put my mother's name on a wait list, she could not understand I wasn't going to put my mother's name on a wait list. And I at the end told her, I have really a well-paying job that I don't want to leave unless I reach the retirement age, but I would rather quit my job than my put my mother on a nursing home so that's how determined I would quit my job then put my mother in a nursing home that's what I told her that's what stopped her then she said all I can offer you based on um on your motherly situation and your situation is um 14 hours a week 
paid by the healthcare, which is one hour in the morning, one hour in the afternoon. Those two hours cannot be combined, cannot be put together. They have to be stand along each one of them. So you can use one in the morning. So I said, okay, great. I'll use one in the morning to help me um, give her her breakfast because by then my mother wasn't eating wasn't remembering, wasn't realizing she was hungry. So you had to put the food in front of her and make sure she ate her meal. And she even needed a reminder to um to to eat. Like every bite you'll have to remind her to, to eat again. So I had somebody coming in in the morning giving her her breakfast, her medication and her morning routine. And then somebody else coming in in midday, doing lunch and, and, and her medication and so on. And then I had somebody that I paid out of pocket to be there from 8 o'clock. So this person comes 7 to 8, gives her breakfast and all that. Um, and, and then with, with the shower, brushing her teeth and all that, all those remindings. Another person comes in at lunchtime. And then I had somebody who was staying with her for the rest of the day. That was the outcome for filling in the intake with the community care access. But the challenge that came with getting services and support for my mother only got more complicated. I found out the intake was the easy part and getting services for my mother would get more difficult as her situation deteriorated. When you listen to how we arrived at my mother's diagnosis and what followed, it's so easy to see her just as the patient, to see her as nothing more than the disease that reduced her to shell of her old self. But I want to also to tell you about my mother, the person, the fierce woman that told her stories unapologetically celebrating the beautiful parts and harsh realities equally. I want to share with you the stories she told us about her life as a girl growing up in a small village, the tales that marked her adulthood. I want to share with you all her losses and the ultimate winnings. Following is one of those stories reconstructed for my childhood memory. Timira's mother finished braiding her hair and went straight to bed. Timira watched her as she lay down on the mat and wrapped herself head to toe with a thick shawl. Mom, are you okay? Timira moved closer to her mother, slowly, tentatively. Her mother nodded, her head moving up and down under the covers that seemed to block Timira's connection to her mother. From that day on, Timira and Farah went to her mother when they woke up. Each holding one of her hands, they sat by her, calling to her aloud, asking her questions. Was she hungry? Did she need water? Fresh clothes? Did she need help to get to the outhouse? She'd say nothing. Didn't open her eyes or blink. It was hard to tell if she was breathing. The morning of the sixth day, since her mother stopped moving, Timira awoke to the sound of people milling about the house. Where is my mother? She asked one of the four women in their tin room. And my father, 
Where is everyone? Timira wondered quietly. Even Farah wasn't there. The women only looked at each other but said nothing to her in response. In their confused expressions, she saw her mother on a four-legged wooden table on the other side of the room. Hoya! She called out to her and received no response. She darted toward her. The woman tried to stop her, but she was too fast for them. And soon she was hanging on to her mother, displayed over her. Her fingers laced tight and wrapped around her mother's neck. The entire camp couldn't coax her off. Villagers took turns. Some people asked her to let go gently while others tried to unfasten her grip by force. Four women from the camp stood around, waiting, holding on a roll of white sheet, their faces streaked by tears of varying dryness. She's gone, Timiro. You must let her go. Timiro didn't know who said that, but those words angered her. Stop with that. Timira shouted, her head still pressed to her mother's chest. My mother isn't dead. She couldn't be dead. She yelled even louder. It went on like that for minutes, stretching into the doom of her devastated life. Timira brought her face closer to her mother's. Her eyes shut gently, her face soft and glowing. She didn't look dead. She isn't dead, Timira said again through tears. Come with me, child. Her father came in and lifted her off of her mother, gently unfastening her fingers. Don't let them wash her. Timira directed her rage at her father as he carried her away from the woman who surrounded her mother to prepare her for burial. She'd be mad at you when she finds out. Timira knew her father didn't like when her mother got mad at him. Her mother had a sharp tongue that could cut to the quick. She won't, her father said, because she's not with us anymore. He stopped saying that. Timira made a fist and tried to hit her father, but he took her hands in one of his and pulled her in a tight hug. Her father gave the best hugs, but that morning his embrace felt nothing more than a clumsy attempt to convince her something that he couldn't understand himself. She's gone, Timira, he said. In that statement, her father sounded just as lost as she was, unsure of the answer he'd just given her. She can't be dead. She wasn't old or sick. The memory of her baby brother's death flickered in her mind. He wasn't old or sick either. And the evil didn't come for her. That was the only other way to explain a sudden death like that. Please go and wake her up. Timir's father reached for a wooden stool in front of their room, sat on it, and pulled her to his lap. Part of her wanted to push him away, to tell him she was too grown to sit on her father's lap, but she didn't. She just sat there limply. What killed her? Timira asked. To her, every death had a reason, old age, illness, childbirth, or the evil that took Isaac. With her mother, there was none of that. Your mother died from a broken heart, her father said. A broken heart? She'd never heard such a disease before. Your brother's loss was too much for her. 
Timir's father choked on the last two words of that sentence, and her heart couldn't take it. How about us? The question must have sounded too harsh to her father because he flinched. No room for us in her heart? I didn't say that. A sob left his lips and he covered his mouth with his hand to stop more from following. Your brother's death made her sad. And Farah and I are alive. Dad couldn't make her happy. Timira didn't wait for her father to justify what she saw as an abandonment. And you don't count? For the second time in as many weeks, Timira, her father and her brother sat under that tree for the seven-day mourning period. People came to tell them how sorry they were for their loss, and they brought food. But she knew they came to gaze upon her cursed family. How would such a double loss come upon them unless they were cursed? Timira hated sitting there while others watched them with those condemning eyes. The questions of how and why her mother died swirled around her family like the drought dust that pushed them out of their village. What did she do to go so fast? One woman asked another not far from where Timira and her family sat. I don't know, but it must have been baneless for no screams were heard, another one responded. To leave such young children behind? The first woman said as if she were speaking to Timira's mother, telling her not to die and leave your husband alone with such great responsibility. Did that mean Timira's mother had control over her death? Timira asked that question quietly, the words remaining in her head. Was it possible for Timira to die at will for losing her mother? Because Timira loved her mother more than anyone else, even though her action, if that's what she'd done, showed her mother didn't feel the same about Timira. Why else would she leave her grief-stricken and motherless? The way she'd lost that child, one of the women seemed to empathize with Timira's mother. How is a mother to survive such a thing? She has to steal a life and needing a mother, the other woman said. It's not right. They came and went, women, men, children, asking questions, speaking loud enough for Timira and her family to hear, all the while pretending to be whispering. Even her friends, Saadia and Ambiya, took part in the assumptions. Between Timira and Farah, her father sat there on the same stool he'd occupied a week ago for Isaac's loss. During Isaac's morning, he couldn't sit as if the guilt of letting the evil take his boy propelled him forward. Now that her mother had abandoned them, he remained seated, glued to the stool beneath him. His eyes were vacant and he stared back at the unkind world, the void her mother had left behind for all to see. Timira didn't realize this until much later, that her father didn't comprehend the loss, not then and not ever. If there is anything we could do to help, as if they were reading from a script, each person made such a statement upon leaving, just ask. Turn back time. Bring my brother and mother back. Timira almost shrieked at them. She wanted to bolt, to get away from them, leave the shade under the tree as her mother had done. 
but she stayed put every day of those seven dreadful days because she didn't want to be her mother and disappear when her family needed her the most. So she endured as people around them spoke of the misfortunes of her family. She endured listening to their implied suppositions of her mother's selfishness. She endured as one person or another mentioned the curse. Her mind was silent, her face expressionless. She held on to her brother and her father, the broken pieces of her family. Their touch kept her grounded during the day, giving her the comfort to weather those accusing glares. But at night, lying on the mat her mother once occupied, she wished for a sudden departure. The desire to leave her miserable existence behind welled in her. But at the sound of the morning prayer call, well before daylight penetrated through the small holes of the tin roof, she got up and stood in line for the community cooking fire in her mother's place. Her mother's leaving obliterated the unconditional love she claimed to have for her. The years that followed her mother's death did nothing to diminish her fury at her mother's action. The anger she'd felt settled into the pit of her stomach as time passed. The ire grew with her, gaining strength the years that followed. Every slight she'd suffered, any misfortune that came her way, and there were too many to count, only confirmed the feeling of abandonment. She'd learned a lesson of unworthiness at twelve, a lesson that threatened to last a lifetime if she let it. It clattered loudly with every breath she drew. Every sight she beheld announced her unlovable presence, loud and clear. If her mother couldn't love her enough to stay, how could she expect others to love her? Only she wouldn't say any of it aloud, not to others who judged her mother in death just as they were in life. Not to her father or brother, for she feared burdening them with the pain in the hollow of her being. Even as a child, she knew they couldn't handle knowing how she'd felt. I think it's best if we leave. The elder brought the idea ten days after Timur's mother's death, before it's too late. It's too late for my family. Her father didn't spend any time in pleasantries. People are frightened about, the elder's sentence trailed off. About the things that could happen to them? Timur's father finished the sentence for the elder, like my family's tragedy. You must come with us, the elder spoke to her father with a comforting tone. We won't abandon you. Not until I know why they killed my child. Take the two you have away from here. And leave without knowing? Timir's father asked, I won't. We have to leave, the elder said. My wife is beside herself with worry, and it's not only her. Everyone is scared. Go without me. I am sorry, the elder apologized. I can't leave you here with the little ones. I won't go until I know, not after I'd lost half my family. If the elder expected Timir's father to change his mind, he didn't get it. Not until they answered to the charges. We came together, it's proper, we live together. The elder wrung his hands. 
Only others are demanding we go at once. He stopped and walked toward the tin room he shared with his family. But he turned around before he reached the door and returned to where her father stood in front of the room. We shouldn't leave you here alone with the little ones. Timir's father said nothing, and the elder returned to his family. The following day, Timir's family woke up to an empty camp. Exodus complete, only three of them, alone and scared. As they walked around the camp together, using the outhouse, cooking and washing, the camp gaped at them. The fear of what might be lurking beyond the gate grew by the hour. Still, Timira was proud of her father's decision to see it through, and in that, he was so unlike her mother. My mother, the person and the patient, can be found in all your podcast streaming apps or head to my website, fortumacuso.com, to listen to the entire season. Please do not forget to listen, like, share, and follow. And join me next week as I share with you another episode of my mother's journey as both the person and the patient. Thank you.